You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello and welcome to The Investor Way with myself, John McEwen, and my co-host Sam Ball. This week on The Investor Way, we have Fevertree, Dunelm, Redrow, Trainline, Inditex, and our US company of the, or US listed company of the week is Mercado Libre. Sam, shall I kick us off with Fever Tree? Oh, yes. Favorite of the show. <laughs> yes, it is. So it's uh, aim listed tonic manufacturer. They had their half year results out last week with sales rising 14% to £160.9 million with a strong on trade performance. EBITDA, however, fell 25% to £22 million with margins under pressure dropping from 20.6% to 13.6% with ongoing inflationary headwinds. Breaking the results down into regions, the UK, which accounts for 33% of total revenue, saw sales grow 6% to £53.5 million, with on-trade sales up a massive 73%, offsetting the 21% decrease in sales from retail. Whilst this is reflective of the pandemic last year, Fevertree is planning to launch new products to boost its retail sales. In Europe, sales were up 27% to £53.3 million, with an improved performance as holidaymakers returned, pushing sales ahead of 2019 levels. In the US, sales grew 11% to £40.1 million, but this could have been higher if deliveries had been able to keep pace with demand. Despite ongoing labour issues and shipping problems, Fevertree has added more than 1,000 new points of distribution in Marriott Hotels and accounts at Hilton and Disney. There are still production issues in the US, made particularly acute by the poor availability of glass bottling, which has been impacted due to the high gas prices and other cost pressures. In the rest of the world, revenue grew 7%. Free cash flow came in at minus £5 million and total net cash fell to just below £100 million from £133 million a year early, partly reflecting the payment of the £50 million special dividend. In terms of valuation, Fevertree has a market cap of around a £1 billion and trades at 38 times forward earnings, compared with a 10-year average of around 47 and it yields in the region of 1.5%. I certainly like Fever Tree, the brand, and enjoy the products. However, I am a bit concerned, particularly with its top evaluation, as we've said before, at 38 times forward earnings, particularly with the squeeze it's feeling to its margins. But I think taking a longer term view, it's what it's doing seems sensible in that it's building the distribution and the manufacturing, manufacturing in-house and in the US, which I think... It's, it's priced as though it's going to win the US and it, I suppose it has to invest in its infrastructure like that. I guess it's, it's, it's a big risk though because it's pretty much saturated in the UK market. So it's priced as though it is going to do the US and if it doesn't, it's got a long way to fall. So for me, I probably wouldn't be looking any further at Fevertree at the moment. Exciting company to watch but I'm a little bit risk averse, I think, when it comes to when it comes to that stock. Sam, what are your thoughts on Fevertree and these results? I think the results are very good. I think 
revenue rise pretty decent. Really, like you say, the one to watch is the US. Revenue grows a little weak at 11% compared to what you'd like, but deliveries can't keep pace with demand because of the chipping issues. That's where you want to be. That yeah. growth is artificially low. It would be higher. I think the strategy with the investment is the right one. I think a lot of investors have been quite short-sighted with this stock, actually, because margins are being squeezed and the stock price does reflect that. So it's down about two-thirds in the past year. It's now trading at a forward PE of 38, like you said. But if you look at the PE for the past 12 months, it's actually at 22. Um, I appreciate these margins have been squeezed, so the profits won't be as high. But I think these are very temporary problems. And the profits will get back to those levels, if not higher. There's no, well, there's virtually no doubt that this business can just wait it out. When they're burning cash at, what is this, half year results? Yes. Yeah. When they're burning cash of 5 million a half and they've got 100 million cash, they're not running out. And if they were to run out, they could just stop paying the dividend. They're going to be absolutely fine. They're going to carry on growing revenue in the meantime. And then those margins will go back up, I think, because it will still be a premium brand in a few years' time. And they'll be able to just get the margin. I think the margins will go back up. I think a lot of the cost will start to go back down. Or if they don't, they can put the prices up. I quite like it. At at 38 times earnings. 38 times forward earnings, but those are reduced forward earnings. But it's, it's 28, it's, sorry, it's 22 times last year's earnings. Mm. And when you think about how the US growth is just getting started, I think it's quite reasonable. I mean, it's taken a two thirds drop for it to get to that point for me. <laughs> but it's at a five year low now. It might drop further, but I, I think you could, yeah, I, I do like it. It's probably not at a level where I think I want to own it more than anything else that's currently in my portfolio. So I don't think I'll be buying it, but it's it's always been good enough for the watch list, the issues valuation. But I think it's starting to get, or I think it's it's probably at the most reasonable valuation since we've ever covered it. Do you think there are any comparisons that you could make between Fever Tree and Boohoo? I guess the first comparison would be trying to catch a falling knife. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's, but yeah, I, I yeah, I, I think there probably is because it is quite a low PE on a historic basis like Boohoo was and then the profits have, have dropped. I also think it's it's quite like Boohoo in that it's got, a, it's got a quite a few short-term problems on the costing side, but nothing where you'd be concerned about the business seeing it out. I guess the only difference with Boohoo is a lot of it's like fast fashion and it, it was a pandemic winner. So maybe you've got more long-term concerns about Boohoo. I, I personally am not particularly worried, and I think especially at the current valuation. But I think with Fever Tree, I think it's still got a lot of growth ahead of it. Um, I don't think anyone's going to argue Fever Tree's been a lockdown winner and its sales are going to start to fall. Or if there are people arguing that, I've not, I've not heard it. So I think there are some comparisons, yeah. What about you? Yeah, and I mean, I suppose as well, like you say, the, the, the demand is there and the problem that they're having is... The, on on the supply side, which is you know obviously a better position to be in than the converse. Boohoo, I liked and I do now own, but the issue was always the valuation, and they were both sort of toppy aim stocks. And I yeah came into Boohoo when the valuation had come down, and hopefully it's not going to be you know defined as a falling knife, but certainly be cut so far. But I'd be optimistic about yeah the long longer term fundamentals, and I think if it does you know. 
fever tree if it continues that growth and it does you know improve it's not you know held back long term in america then you know it, it could absolutely grow into the valuation and maybe it isn't so outrageous but i don't think yeah i don't think one for me at the moment okay shall we move on to dunelm then yes so dunelm for anyone who doesn't know i think they advertise themselves as the home of homes so you basically go for anyone who's not being you go and buy stuff for your house basically um <laughs> homewares homewares that's the word i was looking for so they have come out with their full year results and total sales were up 16.2 percent to 1.553 billion gross margin fell slightly from 51.6 percent to 51.2 percent operating cost to sales ratio i mean this is a bit i don't know why they put this in there i don't know why they don't just give you the operating margin but anyway the operating cost to sales ratio dropped from 39.1 percent to 37.5 percent diluted earnings per share increased 30.5 percent to 82.1 p and the digital proportion of total sales fell from 46 percent to 35 percent free cash flow was up from 108.5 million to 153 million and the net cash position fell from 128.6 million to a net debt position of 23.8 million in the highlights i've mentioned homeware market share gain of 140 basis points and continued share gains in furniture active customers grew by eight and a half percent over the year with increases across all demographics New e-commerce and furniture fulfillment operations opened in the year, giving capacity for growth and improved delivery options for customers. The free cash flow of $153 million represented a 70% conversion of operating profit into cash. They expect to deliver approximately 50% gross margins for the full year in the current financial year and manage costs through efficiency improvements and operational grip. They've also highlighted that their sales growth for the past three years was 41% in total. And they've achieved consistently high customer reviews on their own brand products with an average of 4.6 out of 5. And for the cash generation, where they've gone from a net cash position of 128 million to a net debt position of 23 million, they've said this is due to the an outflow firstly in working capital due to a decision to build inventory levels. Uh, new supply investment in new supply chain capacity, three new stores, nine refits, and decarbonisation initiatives, and the eighteen million pound purchase of the trade and assets of Sunflex, which is a window supplier. I think I've talked about this last time we covered it, but they've given the market share for all the different businesses they're in uh, for everyday necessities, which is stuff like pots and pans and utensils. They currently have a below five percent market share. The and that contributed to 12% of the year-over-year sales growth. For rewarding essentials, which is duvets and pillows, bed linen, stuff like that, that contributed to 36% of year-over-year sales growth, and they have an over 10% market share. For decorative enhancements, so cushions, candles, vases, that stuff, that made up 13% of sales growth, and the market shares between 5 and 10%. Room refreshes, so curtains, blinds, rugs, mirrors, that stuff, that contributed 21% of sales growth and the market shares over 10%. Considered permanence, so like dining and living room and bedroom furniture, stuff like that, that contributed to 18% of year-over-year sales growth and they currently have a less than 5% market share for that. Looking at all those market shares, I think 
a lot of those markets will be highly fragmented. So I don't really see them getting, they're not going to get a dominant position for pots and pans, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of them, although they're low and that might look quite encouraging, they're probably, there's probably a very low ceiling as to what proportion they can get to. The only one that I'd look at and think, well, that could maybe be quite a bit higher. And even still, if a low, if you know, if you go from a three percent market share to a six, you could still do very well anyway. But the one where I'd look and say maybe that could be a bit higher is the permanence, so that basically the furniture and made-to-measure stuff, where that's less than five percent. I think I could see that being quite a bit higher actually, which is good because that's got the highest average item value of one hundred twenty-nine pounds. If we just look at the figures for the last five years, so. In the 2018 financial year, sales grew 9.9%, then 4.8%, then they dropped 3.9% in the COVID year, and they were up 26.3%, then up 18.4%. The gross profit margins increased in the last five years from 48% to 51.2%. Free cash flow has increased from 51 million to 153 million, and the earnings per share has increased from 40p a share to 83.6p a share. And in terms of the valuation, I'm not really sure why. There's some stuff, I think, where they're concerned over the increasing costs and stuff. But these are very good results. The, the guidance looks looks fine to me as well. But um, the results have not done... The, the share performance hasn't been very good. It's down 45% in a year. And it now trades at a P ratio of 9.5 and, and has a dividend yield of 3.33%. I'm not, I wasn't entirely sure why this is, was at first, because that's a very low valuation for a business that's historically put up fantastic results. Uh, so I tried to have a little think, and I, I think main thing I think of is it like partly because it's seen as a bit of a lockdown winner, so you might get a drop off from that. Um, but then also, is it just a cyclical stock? So, you know, as we go into a recession and stuff, is it going to sort of rise and fall with the house builders where if, if people aren't? People are just going to be spending. It's one of the things you cut back on, isn't it? You're not going to redo your lounge in a recession. You can quite easily just delay that purchase. But I thought these were excellent results. And I, th- I think the valuation is very reasonable for what's a very good business. John, what are your thoughts on the results and the valuation? Yeah, I mean, I, I would completely agree with you. They, they seem very good results to me. And yeah, I, I think probably the valuation, it is low, but is it, you know, in anticipation of the downturn, it being potentially being cyclical or more cyclical? And the sort of, I suppose, the news that's going to be coming through in the next year. But we'll see. I mean, it's it's very attractively priced and it's one of the healthier retailers, I would say. And, you know, historically, although that's no sort of guide to the future, it has performed well. And I think if you were to look at the retailers and narrow them down in the UK, Dunelm would one of my preferred picks yeah it's we've covered it before on the show and i think i I can't remember exactly when it was it will have been either six months or a year ago Mm. because we'll have either looked at the half year or the full year results but i think it was at a p of about 14 and i thought it was pretty reasonable then (laughs) yes so yeah dividends quite good now as well yeah i was gonna say does that make you want to take a position in Dunelm or is it more an opportunity it's, cost it's definitely good enough for the watch list I think actually I, I'd probably get that over a house builder I think you'd probably still get yeah. a lot of you get an exposure to a similar market but I just I just I just prefer that business I think there's less sort of structural risk with it <laughs> you know it's less at the mercy yeah. of like regulation and stuff like that but 
Yeah, um, that's the, fair no, enough. I, I think it's a very good business. I, I think it's a very, very good price as well. It's, I wouldn't mm. put it in the same bracket of retailer as like a Next, for example. But it's probably on that next level down and a P of nine with that kind of growth rate. Yeah, it, it's, it's very reasonable. It's well but, above Halfords from last week. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> All right, should we move on to a house builder, actually? Yeah, so, so quite linked. Yeah, we've got, we like our house builders. And, well, this one I like very much. I actually own Redrow. It's the FTSE, well, a FTSE 250 listed house builder. They had their four-year results out last week with revenue growing 10% to £2.14 billion and operating profit grew 29% to £414 million. Pre-tax profit fell from £314 million to £246 million after exceptional fire safety costs of £164 million in the aftermath of the Grenfell Tower blaze and the deal that was agreed with Michael Gove. Legal completions were up 2% at 5715 and in terms of the home's revenue, private houses' revenue grew 23% to £1.68 million Private apartments was down 28% to £232 million, and affordable homes were also down by 3% to £207 million. And in terms of where the revenue comes from geographically, the North accounts for 21% of revenue, Central 26% of revenue, South 42%, and Collendale within London 8%. At the end of June, the order book stood at £1.44 billion, ahead of the £1.43 billion in 2021, and private reservations per outlet per week were down slightly to 0.68 from uh, 0.7, and the cancellation uh, rate remained stable at 19%. In terms of current land, there are 5,958 plots that were added on 24 sites, and forward land, 4,741 plots added on 34 sites, and 1,579 plots were transferred to current land. The group highlighted that planning remains difficult, and that's something we've seen with the other house builders. And in terms of the operating net cash, this grew to £388 million from £160 million. And the group are continuing with the £100 million share buyback, which was launched in July, and they will raise their final dividend by 19% to 32 pence for the year. And the group are currently guiding for turnover in the region of between £2.3 billion and £2.4 billion, maintaining an operating margin of around 19.5% and return of capital employed of over 23%. In terms of valuation, Redrow has a market cap of £1.65 billion and trades at around eight and a half times earnings with a prospective dividend yield of nearly six and a half percent. I thought these results were good and certainly better than expected. The fire safety costs were something that have been priced in and have negatively impacted on the share prices of the house builders. I would say it probably remains my preferred house builder. We haven't had a look at Taylor Wimpy in a little while, but that is one that I've previously owned. The shares are very cheap at the moment, probably as a result, as we've talked about with the other house builders on the show, that it's cyclical industry, interest rates are rising, and you would expect that to 
impact heavily, probably almost like the canary, first of all, with, with, with the house builders, like I say, reflected in the price. And if you took the longer term view that there's a structural imbalance and these companies are in much better shape than they have been previously at the top of the cycle. Sam, your thoughts on retro and the house building sector? I like it. I think eight and a half times earnings is very reasonable, especially when those earnings include the exceptional fire safety costs. It's very, very cheap, very good dividend as well. I noticed it's got, so it's got net cash of 288 million and it's valued at 1.65 billion. But then the net cash, that won't even include the land bank. Um, so even if you were just, if you were just to just do it on what the assets are worth, it's probably not trading at that much at a premium. So I, th- I think if you're investing in it for the long term, I think you've got probably got quite limited downside risk just because of the value of the assets. And then you've got what I think is a very good business on top of it. So yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, I like it. I think these are very good results. And you know, like like all the house builders, I, I do quite like it going forward in the long term. One for your watch list? I think it is good enough for the watch list. Actually, I, I would, I would, I would put it in. I put it would put it amongst the better house builders. Actually, um, okay. Okay. I, I do like Red Row. Yeah. Should we move on to one that's not going on the watch list? Oh, okay. Giving it away. Train line. Well, we've done it a few times before on the show. So for anyone yeah. who's <laughs> followed Spoiler us alert. before, yeah, it's it's not it's not going to be a surprise for anyone who's listened to us talk about Trainline before. But Trainline have come out with their half-year results. For anyone who doesn't know Trainline, it's a little app you can get to buy train tickets online, basically. So they've come out with half-year results. Group neck ticket sales grew 116% year over year to 2.2 billion in half one, 17% higher than the pre-COVID year 2020. The recovery in net ticket sales over the year helped the group revenue grow 112% to 165 million, 28% higher than the 2020 year. UK consumer division net ticket sales were 1.4 billion, which was 100% higher year over year and 45% higher than the 2020 year. This reflected the continued recovery in passenger volume of UK industry passenger volume peaking at 95% of pre-COVID levels in August and a higher adoption of e-tickets. UK consumer revenue increased 93% year over year to 88 million, 30% higher than 2020. International consumer division net ticket sales were 452 million, 152% higher year over year, and 81% higher than 2020. Net ticket sales improved as we continue to invest in positioning the business as the aggregator of choice on high-speed routes with new carrier competition emerging over the last 12 months and further supported by the strong return of global inbound customers, particularly from the US. International consumer revenue of 24 million was up 305% year over year and 118% versus 2020. Trainline Solutions net ticket revenue was 274 million, 162% higher than prior years, but 55% below 2020, with business travel recovery remaining subdued. Revenues were 53 million, up 103% year over year and 6% above 2020. With reduced net ticket sales offset by growing transaction fees from UK consumer and international consumer. They have reconfirmed improved guidance expectations for 2023. And they've said they expect net ticket sales with year over year growth for the, when, when looking, going back three years, 
uh, between 18 and 27%, and revenue year over three year growth of between 22 and 31%. They said adjusted EBITDA is a percentage of net ticket sales of between 1.9 and 2.1%. Jody Ford, CEO of Trainline, said our strong performance in the first half was led by international consumer, where new product launches and brand campaigns are helping drive increased awareness of Trainline and record levels of customer acquisitions in France and Italy. The strong return of tourists traveling around Europe by train this summer, particularly from the US, further supported growth. In the UK, the rail industry has continued to see passenger numbers recover, reaching 95% of pre-COVID levels during August, its highest level since March 2020. This month we'll see the launch, and then she said later on, this link, this month we'll see the launch of ticket sales with new with Spanish high speed with new Spanish high-speed rail operator. EO ahead of its launch later this year. In terms of the valuation, there's no earnings, but the business trades at a price to sales ratio of 5.91. Um, it has a gross profit percentage of 81%, uh, a gross profit margin of 81%, and that was 72% a year ago. I think it's quite expensive. I don't know when the earnings will ever emerge. And I think if they when they do emerge, I don't think you can really be pricing in that much because if they get too high, I think they're at risk of nationalization um, or at least renegotiation anyway. I just don't really, like we've said last time we covered it, I don't really see this being a business that can just scale and scale and scale. I think it's going to hit a ceiling and if it charges too much money, the governments are just going to come in and think, well, actually, we, we can just do this ourselves. I also thought that although these results were very good, it was up against very easy comparatives and it's still not above pre-COVID levels. So you shouldn't really be flattered by the really high percentage figures. Well, John, yeah. what are your thoughts on the results and the business? I mean, I think the results, they were good, but it's, you know, when, when you look at the comparators, it's it's quite easy to beat them. And yeah, I think the one of the, the main reasons that I don't think there's the investment case is for that, that risk of nationalization. That's what would be undermine anything that I would build towards making an argument um, in favor of train line. And I, I can't go much further than that, to be honest. Um, no, I think it's, it, it, you're like you say, if it does, you know, get to a stage where it's profitable and it, if it's doing well, that that's going to be, it's going to be such an easy target. And I don't think yeah. people would have very much sympathy. Yeah. Well, yeah. And as well, like, I mean, it's, it's still, although it's got impressive growth rates, I mean, revenue in the year to 28 Feb 2022 was 188 million. But that was only because it was 67 million in the 2021 year because it fell off a cliff from 260 million the year before. But yes. Yeah, it's, I just think it's a bit of a funny one, train line, because I find it quite an interesting business. So I always want to cover it when the results come out. But I always caveat at the end by basically saying I consider it to be uninvestable. Yeah. So it probably sounds a bit repetitive every time we cover it. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe something will happen at all. Change your fundamental interpretation or analysis of it. But Well, they'd have to completely change the business model for me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or it's suddenly something happens and it blows out of the water and yeah, you decide it was yeah. uh, wrong. But anyway, we'll, we'll we'll watch. We'll still cover it. On to a business that we do like a lot more, Inditex, which is the owner of Zara. They had their first half results out last week with sales up 25% to 14.8 billion euros with growth across all geographies. 
and operating costs increased more slowly than sales, which led EBITDA up 30% to 4 billion euros. And Zara is the biggest of the group's brands, which accounts for nearly 2,000 of the 6,370 stores, with Bershka, Stradivarius, Paul and Bear the next biggest. In Zara, net sales rose 29% to 10.9 billion euros, with Bershka the next biggest contributor, which saw sales rise 15% to 1.1 billion euros. Europe, excluding Spain, accounted for 46.3% of total sales, followed by the Americas, which account for 20.1%. Inventory levels are up 43% after the group accelerated the intake of the autumn and winter inventory due to potential supply chain issues later in the year. The hybrid model, which is physical and digital, helped to improve cash generated from operations, and the net cash position grew 15% to 9.2 billion euros. A one-off charge of 216 million euros was recognized in the first quarter relating to the businesses in Russia and the Ukraine. New ranges have been well received and Intertex expects online sales to exceed 30% of total sales by 2024. In terms of valuation, Inditex has a market cap of 70 billion euros and trades at 17 times earnings compared with a 10-year average of nearly 25, and it currently yields around 5%. I mean, I thought these results were very, very good. It's a very high-quality business, and it's got that fully integrated online and physical store inventory, similarly to Next, but the numbers it puts out, I would argue, are and have consistently been better since we've been covering it. It's able to maintain its supply chain control very tightly and react very quickly to changing trends. It enjoys strong margins and has lots of loyal customers. It's probably the upper end of high street in terms of price point. It's certainly not cheap when it comes to valuation, but I think you are paying up for these sorts of results. And probably in terms of high street, high street fashion, I think Intertex is, is the best. You could argue on valuation with Next, but I think the numbers that it's consistently putting up, it, it, it is, it is a, a better business. Would I buy shares? Difficult. I like it, but it's 17 times earnings for high street fashion is a lot. And that's probably the bit that I struggle a bit more. I think it, it, you could probably make some comparisons in the sort of, if you come to consumer goods, it's, al it's almost like the Nestle and uh, Next is the Unilever. That, that's that's prob probably how I would see it. But um, I prefer my consumer goods to my high street fashion, full stop. Um, so probably not one for me. Stay on the, stay on the watch list um, and enjoy covering it and see it. Well, see whether it keeps performing in... A downtrend. Sam, what are your thoughts on Intertex? I thought these results were good. I I actually think Next is the better business. And for me, the reason is the online sales for Next. They're just insanely high for a retailer, whereas sure. uh, Intertex is, is hoping to get to above 30% by 2024. Next is it's well above 50%. I can't remember the exact figure, but it's insanely yeah. high. And I think for me, that's what make ne makes Next such a good business. In terms of the valuation for Inditex, 
I think a pit forward period of 17, it's it's quite pricey. And I think if you look at the last sort of five years of results, I don't I don't really see where that much growth comes from. I know it's got the prospective dividend yield of 5.3%. It could maybe increase maybe some of the profits are going to come from, you know, increasing the proportion of sales that are online. I think you almost view it where it gets, it's one of them businesses where it's maybe getting to the point where it's almost like a bond proxy because um, it is so reliable and you've got that 5.3% dividend that it does, like you say, end up in the same sort of bracket as like a Nestle or a Unilever. But but similar to you, I would be much more comfortable holding a Nestle or a Unilever because of the quality of those brands. And I think with mm. fashion, it's a, it's a lot more merciless. So for example, with that inventory, you know, if they've got that wrong, you know that doesn't sell that's it it's it's yeah. gonna it's worth a lot less you know whereas if if unilever have too many pot noodles in the inventory as long as they don't change the branding they can just sit there it's yeah. really not a problem um yeah. so unilever can afford to get more wrong which is good because they do but <laughs> it, it, it's a very very good business but I don't like the industry and it just it just makes me uncomfortable, uh, the valuation. But if I was to go for a business in that industry, I'd I'd be picking next over Inditex. Is that irrespective of the valuation or is that included well, I think, valuation? I can't remember the next valuation when we last looked at it. I think it had come down quite a bit. I think it was like eleven or something. But for yeah, me it's it's, it's about it's, it's about eleven. Oh, okay, so it's it's the proportion of sales that are online for Next. And then as well, the, the growth for Next and what they've been able to do as a retailer has just been phenomenal. You know, they're probably one where if you've gone through the list of retailers that Amazon were going to kill 10 years ago, you'd have crossed them off straight away. You'd just be like, well, they're toast. Yeah. And they're actually a much stronger business than they were 10 years ago, I think. I think they've really, you know, yeah. the, the online business has really made them a much more attractive investment. Um it just seems to be very, very well run as well. And, I suppose and it's, that, not, that's, it's not just fashion mm, next as well. They do mm. sell like homeware and stuff like that. And it sort of leads on a little bit from the business that they, the old business where they have the next catalogs and that mm. sort of, I suppose that loyalty that they built there, that it is in some way sort of mail order of some description. But um, yeah, yeah. Both, um, both very good businesses, yeah. but both in an industry we're less keen on. All right, should we move on to another very good business? Yes. So this is this is probably the most expensive business of the week. Am I right? Or that's... it depends how you measure it. Yeah, okay. If you measure it on <laughs> PE, it is. So without spoiling okay. it, PE is 191. Okay. But price to sales is actually lower than train lines. Okay, okay, fine. So uh, right, right, so yeah. Yeah, Go so on. Mercado Libre have come out with their Q2 results. They actually came out with these about a month and a half ago, but there was nothing out this week that I wanted to look at. And I own Mercado Libre, so I figured I really should get around to having a proper look at them at some point. Anyway, Mercado Libre, for anyone who doesn't know, they are the essentially the Amazon of Latin America. They've come out with their Q2 results and... The highlights include net revenues of $2.6 billion, and all these figures will be in dollars, which is up 56.5% year over year on an FX neutral basis. Income from operations was $250 million, which gives a 9.6% operating margin. Total payment volume, so as well as the Amazon, they've also got like a pay, PayPal of Latin America, which is called Mercado Pag. Pago um, or Pago that had 30.2 billion total payment volume up 83.9% year over year on an FX neutral basis and the gross merchandise volume so the total value of everything sold on the site not just their revenue was 8.6 billion up 26.2% year over year 
in the commerce section, they have highlighted that total gross merchandise volume reached an all-time high over $8.5 billion, growing almost 22% in US dollars and 26% on an FX neutral basis. Similar to pre-pandemic rates, yet over a much higher total base, Argentina and Brazil posted strong growth in dollars and local currency with US dollar growth rates of 33 and 28%, and FX neutral growth rates of 66 and 19% respectively growing the unique buyer base in each country and sustaining user behavior in terms of items per buyer. Mexico was a highlight in terms of gross merchandise volume this quarter with nearly 30% in USD and FX neutral growth, accelerating after the first quarter and adding more unique buyers. Overall, we reached 40.8 million unique buyers in the second quarter, breaking the record we achieved during the peak shopping season of 2021's fourth quarter. We've Invested in continuous improvement to our user experience, including the fast and free shipping offer for the for three quarters of our GMV and better navigation and search interface catered to more category-specific dynamics. Our average user bought almost seven times with us this quarter. Our most loyal users have bought multiples of that. Overall, we sold over 275 million items this quarter and are growing in our three main segments, Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico. Our advertising service has been an increasingly relevant tool to boost conversion rates and accelerate our monetization flywheel. In the second quarter, we had a significant increase in the number of total daily advertisers on our platform in all geographies, combined with a consistent increase in the number of total ad clicks, which grew over 50% year on year on aggregate. Within our shipping services, our focus remains on improving delivery times and driving cost efficiencies throughout our network. The last mile delivery costs improved with the deployment of Meli Extra, our crowdsourced shipping solution that rolled out in Brazil and Mexico, which partially offset transportation cost inflation effects. Within our fulfillment centers, which currently carry nearly 40% of our volumes, we have man- management tools and price incentives designed for sellers to adjust inventory levels to adequately match product turnover rate, which we have already seen some rationalization on inventory depth in the fulfillment centers. And in the fintech section, which is basically Mercado Pago, payment processing and acquiring business delivered a total payment volume of over 30 billion, growing 17, 72% on a USD basis and 84% on an FX neutral basis. The MPOS business, which is the mobile point of sale. So the MPOS business continues to add new devices to its installed base and device sales are still above 1 million devices per quarter. QR payments are growing significantly based in Argentina and in Brazil. The Mercado Pago digital account also shows signs of growth and higher engagement. Digital account total payment volume reached $9.4 billion, growing 167% on a USD and 189% on an FX neutral basis. The 38.2 million unique fintech active users have increased their transactions on wallet payments and transfers. QR and card usage and more users have taken on credit loans through our platform. The asset management and savings feature continues to attract more users and drive further engagement with total assets under management increasing almost 30% year over year, growing sequentially across all three geographies. In Mexico, you're granted an IFPE license to operate our fintech products. We're now confident that our users can consider us a full, fully digital bank solving more than just their payment needs. Our credit business closed the second quarter with a portfolio of $2.7 billion dollars of which about 55% were consumer loans and 20% was a credit card book. The book expanded over 230% year over year and added 272 million in loans sequentially. Gross profit margins improved for the second consecutive quarter, reaching 49.4% with almost $1.3 billion compared to 44.3% last year. 
Total operating expenses represented 39.8% of revenues, up from 34.5% last year, but improving sequentially from 41.5%. The main driver of the higher expense rate was the increase in provisions for doubtful accounts year-on-year related to the growth of the credit business. Total operating expenses as a percentage of revenue, excluding the provisions for doubtful accounts, have improved compared to last year, reaching 28.1% compared to 29.7%. Finally, we delivered a net income of $123 million, a 4.7% net income margin up from 4% last year. They've also got 84 million total unique active users up from 76 million a year ago. And the year-over-year USD growth rates by quarter was 53% in Brazil, Argentina was 62% and Mexico was 65%, which are the three biggest markets. And in local currency, the figure was 42% for Brazil, 104% for Argentina, and 66% for Mexico. In terms of the valuation, the business trades at a P ratio of 191 and a price to sales of 5.2. It has a market cap of 45.7 billion. So down, down about 50% from its uh, all-time high, which was about August 21. As a shareholder, I, I mean, I, I couldn't really ask for more <laughs> from these results. Yeah. I'm not... A, I'm not overly keen on the credit side of the business, but I understand that they're trying to make themselves a digital complete bank. You know, they're, they're basically trying to be like not just the PayPal, but also like the Hargreaves Lansdowne and like the NatWest as well of Latin America. And to do those things, you do have to have the loans business, which although I don't like it, it's it's not currently a huge part of the business. I, I'd rather it wasn't there, but I understand why they're doing it. That'd be my only complaint. In terms of valuation, I think, the figures are fantastic. It's expensive. The PE doesn't really tell the whole story because it's still growing a lot. But a $45 billion market cap, I, I still think it can be significantly bigger than where it is. And the price to sales of 5.2 is not horrific. And if you were to look at it and say, well, what do I think the net margins could be? You know, if it was actually to stop trying to grow, if you think, thought it could have, you know, say a net margin of 10%, it would effectively be at a price to earnings of about 50, 50 times what the earnings could be. If it was 20%, it'd be 25. I think the net margins could be quite high because of the uh, the fintech side. Or never, never, if Amazon's anything to go by, they're not going to be really high on the marketplace side. But then as well, I think the revenue can still be a lot, lot higher. So I think in terms of valuation, it's definitely not cheap, but I, I'm, I'm not going to be selling at the current valuation. John, what are your thoughts on the results in the business? Great results. I think it's a great business. <laughs> I'm just a bit nervous to, to buy shares in. And I suppose you've just got to take that very long-term view and expect some volatility in the short term, which would come with having such a top evaluation. But no, it, it, it is one that I do like. It so, is definitely volatile. I can yeah. So that as a shareholder. It's been a very bumpy ride. I yeah. think I've it's actually the stock I've owned the longest now that's still in my portfolio. I've had it for about five years now. Have you added uh, to it at all, or have you, have you just? I've never have, added to just, it. Okay. Um, and it's, but it's it's up like what's it up since I? I think it's up four or five x. Yeah. Even yeah. after coming down fifty percent from where I bought yeah. it, so I've I've just never needed to add to it because it's always although yeah. my portfolio's gone up, it's gone up so much that even though I put in quite a small amount initially compared to yeah. what I might put in for a position size now. Yeah. It's just grown fine on its own. Out of interest, have you ever looked at it over those five years and thought thought about topping it up? 
Um, I mean, I do struggle with anchoring bias because it's <laughs> so much higher. Yeah. Probably not. I think I think when I was finally at a point where it, I would have been like willing to consider topping it up and had the funds to do so, and it wasn't mm. an alarmingly high proportion of the portfolio, it was pre-pandemic. Mm. It's just one of them stocks where after the pandemic, it just took off. And even now, after a 50% drop, it's still about 50% higher than where it was pre-pandemic. Yeah. So now, like when you sat on a four or five bagger and it's it's still like maybe ten percent of my portfolio, I, I'm not. I've just never been tempted to add to it. No, although I could have added to it at almost any point in like the first few years I owned it, and that would have been a genius decision. Yeah, yeah, uh, but it may not have felt like it at the time, and I suppose it is. Oh no, definitely all, all, not. Yeah, all of the anchoring bias, and I mean, do you think? What do you think about the valuation? And you, because if it is purely anchoring. Is it more that it's uh, what would be holding you back? Is well, it's, it's not that, just that, but it's, it's already 10% of, of my portfolio. portfolio. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, a, it's a risky fine. stock. How, yeah. how much do you want? Fine. I mean, what I do fine. like about it is it gives me exposure to Latin America, which in the individual share, so outside of index funds, I don't have any other companies that are really just purely operating on that continent or like in South America. So I, I do like that as well. But yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a stock you'd want. I mean, even 10%. I think for most people would be very, very high. So I'd probably only really consider adding to it if my portfolio grew to a level where it was actually maybe pushing, it was a much smaller percentage. But at 10%, I'm happy to just let it ride. Fine. Okay. Of the companies this week, which would be your pick? I'd go with Dunelm. That's, <laughs> okay. that's a fairly clear winner for me. What about you? I would probably stick with Redro. I own it, but I like it. And I was I was pleased with the results and I'm uh, braced for whatever happens next. Okay. If you weren't allowed to pick a house builder. Um, okay. I would. And it was my own money, of course. Uh, I, I would go with Dunelm as well. I think Fever Tree is that, that prospect of America. And it would be easy to pick for some, you know, if you're a fan, if it was a fancy portfolio, but then so would Mercado Libre. I think if it were my own money, aside from Redrow, it'd probably be Dunelm or Inditex and I'd go for Dunelm. Okay. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.